ultraviolet light breaks down the proteins in the skin, the collagen, the elastin, but it also can affect the basal cell layer, the stem cells that make the skin and cause skin cancers, basal cell carcinoma, squamous cells, melanomas. So theoretically, that happens, and practically speaking, it's known to happen. People that have a lot of sun exposure with aging, their skin ages more rapidly. People with less melanin in their skin, fair-skinned people get skin cancers more often than darker-skinned people. So for sure, that's all true. Everything's got risk to it. The relative risk of the six minutes of this wavelength and this intensity, this radiance, and in practical terms, nobody's gotten a sunburn from it. I don't think it's something to particularly worry about. Always ask why. Why is this the way it is? The whole goal is to rise the industry, to grow it. Yeah, don't worry about giving us credit, guys. We're not here for that. If it grows the industry, that's what makes me happy. Well, when you first said it, I was going to hang up. <laughs> yeah. and... It's not a race you want to win. Yeah, you're going to lose because it'll be too cheap. You'll be working for like McDonald's money. Otto Mitter, Andre Show from Alibana. Thank you so much, guys, for having me on board. Okay, we'll take 20. I, I can't to... do math. I'm a beauty professional. Yeah, they panning. I do teeth whitening. I'm like, okay, there's some point where you got to draw a line. My biggest concern is longevity and making sure that you've got the best possible mechanical fit. If you're looking for a lash podcast that will challenge how you do lashes, build you up, and help you create a business that not only thrives, but allows you to live a life you're proud of, you've come to the right place. This is Lashcast. Your friend in the lash industry. Coming to you from the City of Roses, this is the broadcast by Lash Professionals and for Lash Professionals. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Today, we are continuing our UV series, talking about UV light, curing adhesives, UV lights, LED lights, all this different stuff that has a lot of us confused and a lot of us not knowing what's going on. So, what did we decide to do? We are bringing you a series of experts, a lot of different people. We have recently had Todd Harris on, who was a physicist, and he came on and he gave us really kind of the big picture and kind of gave us the ground rules of what we need to be looking for. And I know for a lot of you out there, maybe it wasn't quite as definitive as you wish it was. I know I did. I wanted to be just like, this is bad, this is good. Instead, we got a more probably more scientific approach, like, you know what, everything's risk, and, there, and here's the risk involved with this, and here's some standards you need to follow to see if it's safe. But um, you, at the end, you have to trust the companies you're buying from, right? Because some companies, I'd say most that you're going to buy from, are trying to do the right thing. But there are bad players out there. So there is a little bit of due diligence on the buyer beware. Like us need to do our due diligence. So that's what we're here for, to help you see what's working, what's not working. And today, we're going to bring you the medical side of things. As you know, we are good friends with Dr. Warren Stout. have talked about him for years on our podcast, but have never had him on. He's spoken at LashCon, I think, every year. And this is our first time to have him on our podcast. Well, my voice cracked there. How about that? I was so excited. And it's really great to have um, Warren come on because really he is an expert in many, many things. And when it comes to the medical side, he's the best, you know, as far as eyes go, there's really few, few people in the world that know more about eyes than him. But also, he is really actually has a, a technical background because he does. Um, work on board. He's on board, I say, for some high-tech companies. He's been a consultant. Um, he actually works with lasers himself. And so he's really has a, a very broad understanding of technology and its uses and all that. So today, we're going to talk about UV, UV lights with him, which I think is going to be really great because it's great to hear a physicist, but he doesn't work with patients. He doesn't work with people, right? He just knows the, the scientific side um, of what you know works as far as electronics and, what, and all that and standards that we talked about and so forth. But here, we're going to be talking to a doctor now who's going to show what are the effects on the body? What do we need to be concerned about when it comes to the medical side of things, which is really, in the end, I think the most important. Really, we want to make sure that whatever we're doing with our clients, we're not ever sending them to the doctor. That would be the worst case scenario for us. So... Dr. Warren Stout is going to talk about that stuff. And as you know, Tusney uh, loves and gets nerdy about this. So I can't wait for you to hear this episode. But before we get into that, let's do some quick announcements. We have so much going on, but I'll try to get through it quickly. First, if you are a potential sponsor, if you're wanting to be a sponsor, guess what? 
This is your time. Signups are now available. We opened the doors. We sent out the emails to about 400 plus, uh, 450, I think, potential sponsors. Already got about 40 or 50 sponsors on board. So if you've been waiting or you would like to be a sponsor and join us on October 11th through the 14th with about 1,500 people, this is your chance. What you want to do is email me at paul at lashcast.com and I will put you in, it'll get you into the system, all right? I'll get you a deck. I will get you everything you need so that you can assess and see if this is a good fit for you. Um, we're going to be selling tickets to LashCon coming up on March 26th. That's a month from now. So mark your calendar, be ready. We've sold about half of our VIPs. So you do not want to delay. If you want the VIP for sure, and we're upgrading the VIPs this year, I promise it's going to be better. And we'll break that all down in a future episode. We also have LashCon. Clubhouse, our open enrollment is going to be now in April. We're going to do it in March. was too much with LashCon. So April 8th is the goal right now to be having our LashCast Clubhouse. So if you've been seeing or watching or seeing what's going on on our Instagram page, well, mark your calendar and you can join us. It's only $87 a month, guys. Less than the cost of the film for most of you. And I promise you will get much more value than just that. Um, we also have Tuscany's retention course coming up April 13th and 14th in Kansas City. We have two spots there, $1,700. Unless you're a clubhouse member, it's only $1,500 for you. And if it is, you can just reach out to me if you're clubhouse and I will get you the discount code and you can sign up today. IBS, we're going to be at IBS this weekend. This comes out, um, I think, just a few days before, a couple days before. So if you're in New York and you're at the IBS show, look for us. We'd love to say hi and uh, give, you a, give you a hug. How about that? We're going to be at the Last Pro Summit on April 26th. 27th. Love to see you there. And lastly, if you are not a member of the American Lash Association or otherwise known as ALA, please join today. It is an amazing group that's going to be giving us more and more value as more of us jump on. The discount code is LASHCAST25. It gives you 25% off a yearly membership, which brings it to $63, which is like four, five bucks a month. It's super, super affordable. All right. That's all I have for announcements. So now let's get into our episode where we sit down with Dr. Warren Stout and talk about UV lights. Hey, Smart Cookies, you are in for a treat today. We have one of my favorite guests. Actually, I have to correct that. He's never been a guest. No, he never has. But <laughs> he has been such a, a supportive part of this last industry and my business and to all of us at large. Many of you will know him. have been to LashCon, who've listened to this podcast. I feel so excited to actually have him online right now. Welcome to the program, Dr. Stout. Well, thanks, Tassamine and Paul. I appreciate being here. It's an honor, and I'm happy to speak with you. Honestly, the honor is all ours. There's no one that we've talked about more on our show than you. <laughs> like, over the years, <laughs> we referred to you, because obviously we see you as our unofficial advisor when it comes to anything medical. And as a result of that, your name has been very much brought up on our podcast many times. Well, I'm happy to be here and happy to help. We are so lucky to have you as an industry because there are so many medical professionals like grouchy old optometrists that don't want to deal with the issues that our clients may bring into them if they've got contact dermatitis. And then you're up against somebody saying, the doctor told me to take these old things off. And then it makes you feel really bad as a professional. So I'm really glad to have had you over the years as somebody who has been somebody that we can lean on to get real practical information on how to best advise our clients in those situations who's been supportive and helped us to figure out what is contact dermatitis? What are the best ways to treat it if somebody does have that and really give us a peace of mind? So kudos to you. Thank you so much. Always happy to help. Always happy to be here. What today we're going to do is we're going to, we, we were having what Tusk calls our LED UV. Shark Tank. Light LED week. week. Yeah, but it's going to be a whole month. We're going to, it's going to be a bunch of episodes, but this is our one episode where we thought it would be great to bring like a medical professional, someone who has the medical, who really has the best interest of the patients or the clients, right? The people that make sure they're not getting something done to them that would cause them issue or may send them to you to fix a problem that maybe happened in the treatment room. So we want to talk about that and get the medical perspective of it. But also, I know Tess wants to ask a really big question <laughs> that we're going to save the answer for yeah, the end. Yeah, we're teasing it now. So what happens, oh my gosh, if you get glue, cyanoacrylate glue into the eyeball? Yeah. 
heaven forbid it happened, but like, oh my gosh, it actually has happened yeah, before. And Dr. Stout is here to talk to us and about what that looks like. And we'll talk about that at the end. We're going to first do the UV, but hold on if you want to hear the answer to that, because I think it's going to really surprise you. We'll get into those stuff towards the end. But before that, maybe we thought we'd do a little quick introduction. Make yeah, sure. I think it's really important for people to get their information from somebody who is an authority on the subject. So a doctor has more authority than an esthetician, a licensed beauty professional, but there are different specialties within the practice. So somebody of your expertise, Dr. Stout, has much more credibility because of your experience, the field of study that you're in, than somebody who's, let's say, like a podiatrist, right? So I know that you use lasers in your practice, but can you, for those who are new to the program, can you explain a little bit about your expertise? Sure. My training, I suppose I should start with that. After medical school, I did what's called an internship, which is the year that's required of all postgraduate medical students to take in order to get their actual licensure. After one year of internship in internal medicine, you're eligible to practice medicine. You get a license that says you're a physician and a surgeon. And a surgeon? Uh, you probably wouldn't want to choose that person as a surgeon, but that's what's <laughs> I, of course, didn't stop there. I wanted to specialize. I just like to know as much as I can about everything. My specialty was in ophthalmology to be an eye surgeon using lasers and microsurgery and the corneal transplants, that sort of thing. So an ophthalmologist is different than an optometrist because an ophthalmologist is, is a doctor that works on vision. Yeah. Well, here's the difference. So an ophthalmologist went to medical school, learned how to deliver babies, take out your appendix, fix your broken leg, that sort of thing, before specializing in the study of medicine and surgery of the eyes. And so an ophthalmologist is a real physician that can do all of those things, but is a surgeon by trade. An optometrist did not go to medical school. They went to optometric school where they studied some of the same things, optics and that sort of thing, and they learned in books particularly about all of the optical problems that are associated with eyes and, and quite a number of the medical problems as well. But they cannot do surgery, and they have recently in America been allowed to prescribe certain medications, antibiotics, and that sort of thing. It depends on which state they're in. So you would go to an optometrist for contact lenses, glasses, general examinations, and they can do some basic treatments of the eyes. And this is not a knock on optometrist. They do a very fine job and they know lots more about the optics probably than somebody that spends their time doing cataract surgery all day long. So they're very fine at what they do, but their field is quite different than a surgical field. So after my training in ophthalmology, I decided to sub-subspecialize. And my subspecialty that I chose is plastic and reconstructive surgery of the orbit, which is the socket in the skull, the eyelids, which you understand what those are, and the area around that on the face. I was very fortunate to get the very best training in that in the world. They take one person every two years and I was chosen. Is that the Bascom Palmer? Yep. So that my internship was at USC, University of Southern California. My residency was also at University of Southern California. My fellowship training in oculofacial plastic surgery was at University of Miami, the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, the first freestanding entire hospital built in our nation that was devoted only to eyes. Wow. And th there's only one fellowship a year that's every offered? Two years. Every two years, yeah. It was an amazing learning experience. I eventually turned down jobs at Mayo Clinic and Harvard and the finest places that are out there, mostly based on weather, to be honest. <laughs> That's a big deal. <laughs> and my wife's family lived here. So there were a lot of those personal decisions that were made. But I've taught at USC ever since. I'm a full adjunct clinical professor at, at University of Southern California, and I've taught there for the last 30 years. So I've never really left academia entirely, even though I have my own private practice. I'm the medical director of my own ambulatory surgery center, and I've had and still do many outside interests and been in charge of startups of 
quite a number of companies, all of which are pretty technologically related. Well, you are indeed a smart cookie, so I'm glad you're on this show. <laughs> but day, but go ahead. <laughs> you have done a lot of high-profile patients. I know that you're not able to divulge those names. We're not even going to go there. But I know that you are known in the field of diplomats and people like professors and really smart people come to you to do magic for their eyes. And also, I think what he said, just to reemphasize, he's on boards for high tech companies that deal with very complex issues and tools and equipment. So he's very has a background to understand a lot of this stuff. It's not just he used a laser once in his office and now he's an expert. Years ago in the mid 90s, asked me to help them build and, and run their laser vision correction center. Uh, LASIK had not been done in America at that time when they asked me. And we, in fact, I did Tosney's LASIK. You so did. we used a different, we did a different type. I just outed her. I broke all the HIPAA rules. That is okay. <laughs> that I tell everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So we used a very different type of laser there, one with a wavelength of 193 nanometers, as opposed to the wavelengths that we'll be talking about. 193? So that's on the... Uh, UVB. Pretty in, short. Yeah. Short? Yeah. That's in the way on the left-hand side <laughs> of the scale, right? It's in the, it's in the invisible light, right? Yeah, you would call it UVC. Yeah, UVC, yeah. It's the wavelength that is emitted by the sun, but our atmosphere... Knocks it Locks out. every bit of it. So none of it reaches here. It would all have to be artificially generated. So I'm just curious, why the UVC light? Why the wavelength to cut? Well, I'll tell you, since you asked. <laughs> that's a very good question, as usual. Why that wavelength? Why 193? Why not 293? Why not 1800? Why do you choose that wavelength? That wavelength corresponded with the ability to break the covalent bonds in the organic material in the cornea, the carbon-nitrogen bonds. You can think of it almost as harmonics. It was able to break those bonds without breaking neighboring bonds and different kinds of molecules. So it was an incredibly, it is an incredibly precise laser for that purpose. In fact, we when the industry started using the Exmer laser, they had to license it from IBM because IBM held the patents. They were using it for etching microchips. Wow. So somebody figured out that this particular wavelength, like you said, could break those covalent bonds. I'm going to speak to the beauty professional and just remind us what a covalent bond is. So let's talk yeah. about, let's, so we've got a water molecule, which is one oxygen molecule and two hydrogen. So the covalent bond is the little line that's connecting the two hydrogen molecules to the one oxygen. There are different types of bonds, ionic, covalent, different ways that hold molecules together. Specifically, to answer your question, organic covalent bonds, anything truly organic, it's not what you think of as grown in the dirt without pesticides. That's <laughs> a different organic simply means that there's carbon involved in the molecule itself. We are carbon-based life forms. So the amino acids, the proteins, all of these things, the fatty tissue, all of these molecules in our bodies are carbon-based. And so that eczema laser can specifically break those bonds apart in those carbon, the carbon-nitrogen bonds. And you want something to be super, super precise because we're talking about the delicate tissues of the eye. And when you do LASIK, you're, you explain that there's two lasers involved. Correct me if I'm wrong. One that opens the, creates a flap. And then the second one to reshape the, was it the cornea? And then the flap goes back down. Yeah, without getting too far in the weeds. And I'm, I'm happy to go in the weeds. I live in the weeds. I'm very comfortable <laughs> I'm trying to be cognizant of Paul's thinking about the, the focus. audience. I know. I'm sorry. I get rabbit trails. No, I like that. But you make, basically you take a curved cornea and you cut a slice into it and you lift a flat, you leave a little piece of it. So you can hinge that back and you can do that either with a mechanical device, like which a actually has a metal blade. Okay. It's actually an automated device that you put on there, a little robot and you run it across there, or you can use a, a laser to actually make that flap as well. Either one will cut it, but you need to use the eczema laser to actually sculpt the new prescription into the corneal tissue. 
every time, I don't know if you remember, but you could hear that firing. It was going tick, tick like that. Yes, I could. Every time it fired, made that little noise, it was ablating. It was removing a quarter of a micron of tissue. So a quarter of a millionth of a meter of tissue every time we fired that. So that's how precise it was. I remember what it looked like. I mean, you couldn't feel anything, but it was like, a, it felt like there was a circle and there was just like little, not sparks of light, but it looked like boop, boop. Yes. Like I was, yes. if you had like a shoe polish thing and you were doing shoe polish dots on a wall, that's, right. that's what it looked like. And I could see that too. And actually there were little bits of light because when it hit, some of the tissue would autofluoresce and emit a little bit of it would give off some of that energy in the form of visible light. You mean like blue. bioluminescence? Yeah, kind of. Wow, that's so cool. Okay, I'm going to jump in. Okay, we're totally I'm, I'm the ref, out. I'm the ref right. here. I think this is fine. What we wanted to do is to establish that Warren here actually works in this world of lights and lasers and, and understand wavelengths. It's not just something that he read once while in medical school, maybe as a undergrad, but this is something that has been part of his understanding and training and still today has to be up to date with the latest stuff, what's going on. Cause he's regularly using lasers and lights with very different properties. That's true. I use them on a daily basis. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that. It's not a secret. I shared this at LashCon. You were the artist that did my upper lids. I had that done in, it's almost been a year. Yeah, in a February twenty. A few more weeks. Yeah. Yeah. You did my lids and I was completely surprised surprised by a couple of things. The first thing was that it was not painful. I didn't even take a painkiller. I think you prescribed it, but I didn't take it. And this, cause I didn't need it. And the second thing was there was absolutely no bruising. I had no bruising. And that's really strange for a cosmetic procedure of the eyes. A lot of people, when they're done, they're just black and blue. And that's just part of the healing process. Can you explain what was different? Like what made that, di why, why didn't I have that? Why, what didn't I have pain or bruising? Yes, happy to. In terms of the pain, that's the one thing I actually lie to my patients about. And what I tell do you them, mean? Yeah, yeah, I know. Isn't that weird? But I tell them it hurts. I usually tell them just buy some Tylenol and that's good enough. You won't need opiates or anything like that. But I'm neurotically precise. And it's my chance to let my OCD out of its cages in the operating room. OCD is good in surgery. It's bad in relationships. <laughs> so you need to understand your own personality traits and try to apply them where they're best used. I don't even touch tissue that I'm not going to do something with. And when I do it very precisely. And so the amount of tissue trauma in my hands using microsurgical instruments and using lasers instead of scalpels, the amount of tissue trauma is minimized. So patients end up looking in the mirror the next day and it's swollen and typically a little bit bruised. And they usually have three questions. What have I done to myself? Is this ever going to be right? And why doesn't this hurt? But I don't tell them that beforehand because it, they give me this incredulous look like I'm making that up and I'm lying to them and it makes them uncomfortable. So I, instead, I just give them this little white lie that they should go buy some Tylenol and then I let them discover it because it's a really nice discovery. It's not a negative discovery. No, it is. And then yeah. I explain it to them. And sometimes I'll be seeing a new patient in a consult and I'll tell them to go buy some Tylenol and they look at me and they smile. And, and I know it's because their friend sent them. <laughs> so it's not going to. <laughs> so that's the first part of your question. The second part is the bruising. I'm actually using a laser whenever I'm doing any cutting. And so the laser is not only going through the tissue very precisely, but it's also sealing the capillaries and blood vessels as I go through them. And so there's no bleeding. And bruising is just blood that seeped into the tissues. When you bang your knee against something, you break some capillaries under the skin, it bleeds a little bit, and you see that purplish hue from the, that's loose blood in the tissue. And so because the laser is sealing the capillaries, that doesn't happen. Now, Patients, a lot of them bruise some. You were just an extraordinarily good patient. <laughs> patients will start getting into mischief at home. I like, I've chosen that word carefully because it's so non-judgmental, like talking to a child so they know I'm not really terribly mad at them. I can tell when they come in when they have some bruising that around day three, they thought, this is boring. It doesn't hurt. I feel fine. I'm just going to walk the dog, go to the score and do this and that. Then they come back with some bruising just from the exertion. 
the bruising doesn't have any bearing on the outcome. It just has bearing on how people view them from the outside. So you were good. You did everything just right. You left with no bruises. You came back with no bruises. And it was because of the laser. Well, I just wanted to ask, the laser that you used to cut, what's the wavelength on that? Because we're going to be talking about the LEDs, and, we're, and they're usually on a spectrum. And I wanted to know what the laser that you used to cut the eye. It's a much longer wavelength, and it's in the infrared zone on the spectrum. The wavelengths of the, of the lights that we're going to be talking about today are on, in the ultraviolet, so they're very short. That's a very long wave infrared laser. And because it's a long wave infrared laser, it penetrates further and generates heat as it goes. The ultraviolet ones actually don't generate much heat. They're, all the energy is devoted to doing what they're supposed to do. As we talk about the LEDs and the, they're catalyzing the polymerization of, of the superglue, basically. They're starting the, the plastic glue. process. They're starting the right. process of them coming from becoming liquid to solid. That's right. So the long wave lasers, the infrared lasers, are imparting a lot of heat into the system, and they're actually cauterizing the tissue as it goes. Okay. Now we have something to compare it to. Yeah. The lights that a lot of estheticians are using to cure the adhesive to do eyelash extensions is like between 365, 395 to 400. Or even up to, I think I've seen 410, 420. But it's like 360 to 420. I think that with all the different companies we've talked to, that's the range of what the lights are. And I think for us, what we want to know from a medical professional's perspective is really what would bring you concern about this whole world of LED UV lights? Is there things that you see that are red flags or are there things that you would have, want more information? Well, before you answer that, I just want to explain that I know that you've seen this before, but just to establish for the audience that the lamps are not designed to go into the eye. They're designed to be a few inches between two to even 10 inches away from the eye. And the eye is supposed to be closed. So we're not talking about shining the light into an open eye or even an eye that's slightly parted. It's just the skin. That's exactly right. And so just to get it out of the way, you can basically sunburn. You can get keratitis. You can burn the surface of the eye with an ultraviolet light, or even you can go snow blind if you're at high altitude and you're getting a lot of UV light. Like when you're skiing? Yeah. Yes. And the corneal epithelial tissue will pretty much absorb 100% of energy from ultraviolet light, about 290 and smaller, which will cause it quite a bit of damage to that, but it also protects the deeper tissues at the same time. It takes the punch, basically. Oh. So it's just works out that way. So people that are at high altitudes with their eyes open, they can literally sunburn their eyes, but the eyes are going to recover from that. It's going to be really painful, and they're never going to do that again. But it interestingly absorbs almost all the energy right on the surface of it. So, so the uh, inside doesn't getting, get damaged? Yeah, it doesn't penetrate if the wavelength is that short. But as lo the longer the wavelength gets, the more it will start to penetrate, and you can get it to penetrate a little through the cornea. You can cause cataracts with longer wave ultraviolet exposure, that sort of thing. But in your case, to your point, the eyes are closed, so we don't really need to worry about that. All of your listeners are professionals, and they're having the patients close their eye when they're doing it. There's a number of factors involved, and just stop me if I start to ramble too much, mm -hmm. but it's not just the wavelength, but it's the intensity of the light itself that the, the radiance, the fluence, there's a bunch of words for it, the flux across that area, and how much exposure time that person is going to get. Or dosage, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it all adds up. When I'm teaching doctors to use the laser that you and I were just talking about in terms of cutting... They're always saying, well, what power should I set it on? When will it start penetrating? And you can set it on a low power, and it's what I call for them, instead of calling them a radiance, I call it time on tissue. Oh, time you on tissue. You can hold it there for, with a very low setting, and it'll just cook its way through deeper and deeper the longer you keep that spot and that laser on. Or you can turn it way up 
and it'll cut to that depth in a millisecond. So like a, a slow smolder as opposed to like an instant slice right. through. This comes down to intensity. If you have a low intensity, of course, it's going to burn slower. If it's really high intensity, then it burns quickly. Right. And so I have them set it pretty low because I want them moving their hands pretty slowly. And if they're making a mistake, uh, I want it to be a very shallow mistake <laughs> and not a deep one. So as they get more expert, then they can turn the power up. So anyway, the wavelength is just part of it. The intensity of it, you would think of that, the radiance is another part of it. And how long the tissue is being exposed to it is another part of it. And when you're looking at the statistics on the instruments that you're using as that catalyst to um, set that uh, chemical reaction up, you don't know how far away that practitioner is holding the light also. And so the further away the light is, the less powerful it is on that person. Lasers are different. They're monochromatic. They are focused. The wavelengths are all pretty parallel. And so it's going to be pretty strong at a much greater range. It's going to have the same, hold the same strength, but it's more like a light bulb and it gets dimmer the further away you get from it. So your listeners can think about it like that. Is there with right now, what we've shared is that the lights generally are between 360 and let's say 410 or whatever. And the power we've heard is very low wattage, like five watts. And the amperage is point like point zero one. We just talked to point six. It comes in at 1.2, but it goes out at point six. Right. So that's a radiance. And then they say the average like fill would be three minutes. The average new set, like just like a three hour point would be six minutes exposure time. Do those numbers in any way scare you sound like, or not enough information or. There's so many things that go into that, as you were saying, that's the power going in to the machine, but there's all sorts of resistors and capacitors and all kinds of things that are going on in there that the output is going to be different than the input. And then as we we're saying, the distance from the light source itself, and then how long the practitioner is going to hold that light on. One thing that I did before this interview was I did a medical literature search, both in the regular medical literature and also in the National Institute of Health on injuries, reported injuries to the eye from LEDs being used to cure cyanoacrylic glue and there are zero hey okay so, yeah. jazz hands now, all the way just just so and now maybe it's happening they haven't reported it but i would think that would be something that would get reported and furthermore if somebody was injured that company would know about it and it would be something probably reported to the authorities and the com- company would be put on hold until they figure that out so we're going to talk about all of this But I just wanted to get a a 30,000 foot view of the problem and why I'm not terribly worried about it at the moment, just with the instruments that are out there. But there are lots of theoretical things that can be done. And there's lots of bad actors out in the world selling all kinds of strange stuff just to make a few bucks. Every once in a while, you hear about some doctor injecting Botox that they bought from some veterinary or experimental research clinic and paralyzing somebody that was cooked up in where, some bathtub. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That they got out of some rotten soup and they realized it was botulism in the soup and they just strained it. But so people will do all kinds of things, but I think it would be pretty counterproductive for one of these companies, a legitimate company to destroy their own business by doing that. Even if their conscience and their ethics won't do it, the market tends to uh, punish those people. And so far it's worked. Who knows what other people are going to be doing, but I think at least right now, the major producers of these pieces of equipment have managed to keep them safe. Well, I want to just share with you what it's called girl science. And this is a coined from uh, Lash Apothecary who is the distributor of the Opal Light. And we had her on a podcast and she gave the numbers. I'm going to give the numbers and then we're going to break it down to what her husband, Curtis Knight, calls girl science. So their lamp is between 395 and 400 nanometers. And what the girl science is, that equals to about 10 nanometers. It's comparable to like 10 nanometers of light from your iPhone. 
Then they say that it's... No, a, you're getting that... <laughs> okay, I'm messing no, it up. You the, translate what, for me. No, the iPhone is about 10 or 20 nanometers higher. Like, it's blue, ah, it's okay. actually blue light, where the where the iPhone is a blue light. And he's saying it's somewhere, I think, he didn't give it the exact number, but he says it's slightly above that range, what we use our phones and stuff as far as blue light goes, which is visible light. Okay, thank you. Thank you uh, for interpreting. Warren's face so makes it look... To actually cure it, you don't need to buy their... No, it's, it's, he's not saying that the iPhones will cure. It's not in the blue I light know, range. No, it's just trying to give us because we're not a scientist by trade well i think the idea was to say look it's on the range of the uv spectrum it's at the tail end at the very where it becomes so the iphone is higher so, so it's not dangerous it's not in a range that's very extremely dangerous so that range 395 to 405 or 10 or something actually is and you guys know this is actually uva and enough of that will burn you and I don't know, and maybe edit this out, but I don't know what the wavelength is coming off the phone. And I suspect the blue light coming off that is probably not ultraviolet. Yeah. Yeah. And that UV light, and I think it, he's just saying it's a visible light. It's in the visible light range. It's, it's, it's visible blue. So yeah. it's a longer wavelength than that. Than the, so yeah, when you say UVC, though, my red flag goes, or UVA, my red flag goes up and goes, oh, no, I don't want UVA. Can you tell me? how this would be okay. Right. So when you walk outside, you get blasted with UVA every time you go outside. And that UVA is getting through the atmosphere, the sun's generating it, and it doesn't bother you. But if you stand there or lay there long enough, it will burn your skin. People do it all day long deliberately at the beach. There's no difference in the irradiance at the beach than there is at your house. Just because it's like five miles away, it doesn't make any difference. So if you went up on your roof and laid down, you get the same sunburn. But you get such a low dosage, the time on tissue isn't enough to cause that much damage. It can be cumulative with aging effects and that sort of thing, but you won't burn the skin at that moment. Okay. It's not enough. Right. We all understand that. So I'm going to go back to the girl science part. So we talked Mm -hmm. about the wavelength. And then we talked about five watts. That's how much irradiance. Irradiance. Thank you. It's five five watts of LED. And they were saying that the girl science part is that it's a tenth of the normal house light light bulb in your house. That's like a tenth of that. Well, most light bulbs are going to be sixty to hundred watts as a typical house light. Yeah, I don't want to confuse the wattage that it takes to create the light with the output. Okay, let's talk about that. Explain to me what that means. Well, a 60-watt bulb, incandescent bulb, not an LED, will produce less light than a 100-watt bulb or a 150-watt bulb. Everybody knows that from replacing light bulbs. That's the power it takes to generate that light. That doesn't mean the radiance coming out of that bulb is that many watts. Uh, It's certainly not. It's converted that electrical energy is converted to, to light energy, photonic energy. And they're two different measurements entirely. So you can't go by the watts into that and the radiance coming out of it. It's going to be different, less. Yeah. Which is what then he gets into the amperage being, they say it takes 1.2 amps input, and it comes out but it comes as out as, far as measurable on the skin or power being emitted is 0.6. The energy coming out. It drops because some of it's converted into creating that. There's a bunch of fluence irradiance, flux. There's all of these physics terms for measuring those things. Amperage is typically used for the machinery, what it takes to produce it. But we're getting in our in the weeds. Okay, yeah, what, I guess what, the, what, the, the biggest... For listeners, you know, yeah, I guess for our listeners, is there a amperage level there that would be considered dangerous or would be too much. Like if you heard certain numbers coming out, you'd be like, what would scare you? That start getting to the range where that sounds a little bit too powerful. Well, I would just automatically assume that it was going to create a more powerful light and more radiance, just like we were saying a little bit ago. The watts on the bulb rating implies that it's going to be putting out a brighter light. It would be the same sort of concept. I know that the UV lamps for nails have been on the market for quite a while, and those are a lot stronger. Those are a lot more, you're not supposed to like look into those. And But in your scan of the search from the National Institutes of Health, the search that you did, it include the nail lights, any kind of UV lights? 
because the no, nail light. Actually, I was being specific for eyes. Oh, yeah. okay. Which is fine because that's not our goal. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions that people will say the nail lamps are just actually the same thing not. as the lights that are being used for eyes. And not that we've shown those details to you. So you probably wouldn't have much comment on this, but we've, they are not. And we want to assure people that these are very specifically designed for the eyes with certain understandings. One thing I want to know is, because there's some ideas that we've heard people say, well, they should put some sort of cover on the eyelid to protect it from the UV light. Can the UV light damage or go beyond just the eyelid into the eye itself and damage in some way? You mean penetrate through the penetrate. eyelid? Yeah. 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 It won't. Yeah, it won't. For the reasons that I said a minute ago, just the shorter the wavelength, the less it will penetrate. And the UV, by definition, is fairly short. So it can penetrate into the skin, but it's not going to go past that. Okay. It really won't. So with the wavelength and like the doshas, the time on tissue, can this cause extrinsic aging like it would if you went out in the sun? Well, theoretically, yes. But again, how much is it going to cause? And it ultraviolet light breaks down the proteins in the skin, the collagen, the elastin, but it also can affect the basal cell layer, the stem cells that make the skin and cause skin cancers, basal cell carcinoma, squamous cells, melanomas. They So theoretically, that happens, and practically speaking, it's known to happen. People that have a lot of sun exposure with aging, their skin ages more rapidly. People with less melanin in their skin Fair-skinned people get skin cancers more often than darker-skinned people. So for sure, that's all true. Uh, it just depends on the relative risk. Everything's got risk to it. The relative risk of the six minutes of this wavelength and this intensity, this radiance, and in practical terms, nobody's gotten a sunburn from it, and it would take... 20 years to find out if the cancer rate was increased because of this sort of thing. Because even with the sun exposure, the skin cancers don't come until decades later. Just my gut, my general medical acumen, my spidey sense, the instincts that we use all day long to take care of people, I don't think it's something to particularly worry about. So for a lash artist to buy a system that has a certificate that has been from a national independent lab that verifies that the ANSI or IEC or INCIRP standards have been met and that proves that the lamp is safe for human tissue. And if a lash artist wanted to use one of those lamps as directed, the appropriate distance away from the skin, would you think that was safe if they're using it according to the directions and it's got a certificate? So I stuck the word relatively there because nothing's completely safe, but it's dangerous going outside. It's dangerous staying inside. So the word, they're always qualifying everything. And so I felt compelled to put that there too. If I were a woman, would I go and get lash extensions using those lights? Yes, I would. It's like aspirin is an over-the-counter drug, but it can be fatal if you take 200 jars of it. Or uh, last night. <laughs> or even water. If you have, if you ingest too That's much right. water at a short distance of time, the dosage of it, you, yeah. it can... At 200 feet underwater, I find it's actually quite deadly. Never mind. Uh, okay. That's... No, actually, I know you were teasing, but 200 feet oxygen is toxic. And you will oh. have a grand mal seizure and die. There you go. Explain this to me. Yeah, oxygen is quite toxic under pressure. People that scuba dive very deep use special mixtures of gases so they have less and less oxygen in it as they go down. And nitrogen is like a narcotic. So they try to cut back on that too because they get they literally get tipsy the deeper they go. Hmm. They There's have... something called nitrogen narcosis. It's Interesting. A Wow. wow. Yeah. Okay. And so, and then, but when they've been in, under pressure for a long time, they have to come up slowly. Otherwise they'll get the bends, right? Right. Because their body has absorbed the gases and just like opening a can of Coke and depressurizing it, suddenly it'll, it'll bubble all up out of there. And that is not good to have those emboli, those little bubbles in your bloodstream. It'll kill you. So the most benign thing can be fatal if used in the wrong dosage in the wrong conditions. That's right. 
So we are living in this Goldilocks place where there's a balance of things that make it possible for us to live. Most of the water is liquid. Some of it could fall on your head and kill you. Uh, if, you're, if it's too cold out. So to your point, everything's got some relative risk. But again, knowing everything that I know about all of this, I would feel safe having those LEDs used to put on lash extensions. So I'm really happy to hear that. That's what we want. I think for our audience, that's what we're hoping. We didn't know, by the way, when we started doing this, these talks with people, what the results were. We were going to stand by whatever. If it came out, that was like, well, it's still too unknown. It's a little dangerous. It's on the cusp of being on the cliff. And we'd be rather be, we don't want to be on the cusp of the cliff. We want to be far enough away that we know it's safe and that there's always relative dangers with everything we do. So we, there was always that caveat. We have to always add that little I thing. I think to used correctly, that. used and buying from a reputable manager, a product, a company that has the certificates, the legitimate certificates. Um, there, I can rest assured that it's it's relatively safe. And I've That's been right. using it for a couple months and I absolutely love it. I, I know that there's multiple systems out there. I'm going to try several. So thank you for weighing in. Now, before we leave, let's get to our, yeah, our, our, our one the question. teaser here. So what happens? Okay. What happens if you actually get cyanoacrylate in your eye? I was going through a Facebook a group and one of the posts was like, ladies, make sure you don't put your nail glue in the same spot where you put your eye drops. And I commented that I know that this has happened because you've talked to me about patients that have done this before. Can you elaborate on your experience? Sure. And, and that's right. The, the scenario is, and you think, how stupid can somebody be to go and get super glue and put it in their eye? I mean, really, <laughs> how can you even have sympathy with that person that is that dumb to actually do that? But what really happens, and I've seen it happen in very bright, very thoughtful people that were, they set themselves up for a problem. They do just what you warn them not to do. And they keep the super glue in their medicine cabinet with all those other little vials of things. Like nail glue. Right. Often their contact lens wears and they're having some problem with the contact and it's like folded or hurting or whatever, and they can't get it out. So they're not seeing well. And they go there and they grab that little bottle and put it in to try to lubricate it to get their contact out. And lo and behold, the super glue bottle is very similar to the artificial tear bottle. And they've just dumped super glue in their eye. What happens? I saw that happen often enough that I actually reached out to one of the major companies of Superglue and asked them to change their bottle to make it more of a distinctive shape so that people could tell by feel when they weren't seeing well, they could tell by feel that it wasn't the artificial tear. And they didn't. The next few patients that I saw got together and were suing them, I think. I'm not happy about lawsuits, but sometimes these people need... To, yeah. to wake up and do something to make their product a little bit safer. So anyway. What happens when you get super glue or cyanoacrylate directly in the eye? You just give it up. Yeah, are you done? Are you, you're you done. You're blind your for the rest of your life. I remove it because you can use it therapeutically, put directly in the eye to help treat surgeries or lacerations and things like that. But you put a contact lens over the top of it so it's not scraping the underneath of the eyelid every time they blink. When they just put it in there and it's in a random god-awful shape that's always full and always causing some sort of trauma to the eyelids and maybe the eye as well. Because so it's scratching the, the it's... Is actually anesthetized the patient and got in and under the microscope actually removed it. Ah. You mechanically m remove it. That's right. I, I kind of chip it away and peel it away, peel it off the tissue. And... Do you use lasers by chance or is that where you more a scalpel type? Yeah, no, I need to, yeah, I need to actually chip it away. So when that happens, I'm assuming that some of the corneal keratin tissue is coming off. That's exactly all right. Because it's stuck to the epithelium. So you basically rip that off. So you've given them a corneal abrasion and then you treat that. But that's a much better situation and more manageable than having a chunk of jagged glue in your eye. Right. Oh my gosh. Okay. Now this has never happened. I don't think this has ever happened yet. As, as I think that you've told me you've looked in the medical, what would happen? Worst case scenario, it never happens with the lash arts because she's never putting the glue directly over an op somebody's open eye. She's never doing that. It's usually off to the side, but let's say she's a beginner and she's absolutely like, I don't know, like 
No, I've seen some pictures where they've accidentally spilled glue all oh, the maybe top of the eye. Oh, maybe from it's in a glue ring and yeah. you, you tip it and it goes into the eye. I've seen it a couple okay, times. Okay, so what should the lash artist do if cyanoacrylate ever gets into the eye? It needs to come out. So she needs a call for help, basically. How do you do that? Do you tell do you her, go her to do ER you put a gauze over the eye? Do you tell her, just, do you call the ambulance? What happens? Well, it depends on her relationship. As I've said at your meetings on most occasions, I think all the lash artists should try to develop a relationship with an optometrist or ophthalmologist. That's more of an ophthalmologist problem because it ends up likely being, they may need a little bit of surgery. But if they have a, if they have a relationship with an optometrist, they can call them because often optometrists have these relationships as well. It needs to be removed from there. So what can she do at the instantly? Instantly, that? what happens? As, as it sets up pretty quickly, but you can immediately take some gauze or something and try to absorb as much as, of it as you can in those seconds to get a, to debulk it as quickly as you can. There's probably going to be some left in the eye. So you would still want to have that patient see an eye doctor. So it just happened and you want to handle as a professional. So you put a gauze over them. You say, listen, you need to see a doctor right now. Is it something that they should call an ambulance for or is it something? Well, it, it depends on if they have a driver. Yeah. If they can't drive, okay. then yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't want them driving probably. They're, they're going to be in pain and, and not themselves. So I would immediately get in touch with that doctor and start following that doctor's advice what you can do instantly is take some gauze or something, try to absorb as much of it and get as much of it out of there as you can. But from that moment, once you're done with that, from that moment forward, you need to have them in the hands of an eye doctor, at least would, following. Would directions. it be good for them to close the eye maybe and cover an eye or should they try to keep the eye open? It typically is in there and when they blink, it's scratching. And so they typically instinctively close their eye and don't want to open it. Yeah. Okay. So they're already managing that. Okay. Okay. And then I'm going to assume that obviously it's during the day if they can get to an ophthalmologist bear, but if it's an evening, they may not have any contact there. They That's may have ER is where they're going to have to go, right? That's exactly right, because there will be one on call. Very good. I'm glad it's not a common occurrence, but now you know. <laughs> Dr. Stout, it has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate you sharing your information and your knowledge with us and our community. Truly thankful. Always a pleasure. You and Paul have done such an amazing job. You're leaders in the field, and I'm happy to be part of it. Well, thank you. And I know, Tuss, we've wanted to have other episodes where we talk about a billion other topics. We have we to have you on again. That and have actually not so much on the UV, but more on all the typical all the other concerns stuff. that we have in our industry, which they're, as we share... Some are very frivolous and some are actually very uh, concerning that we should be talking about and helping better equip our audience with. So we'll definitely have to get set that up. But otherwise, it's been a pleasure. And hopefully, I think we haven't even talked about it, but hopefully we'll have it back at LashCon too. <laughs> so I know we'll just, yeah, Tess will probably have to reach out and tell you the dates on that soon because that's uh, crazy enough, but we're already working on it. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Very welcome. That's a wrap. We are done. We are out of here. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Please follow us on Instagram at LashCast and at the Lash Conference. And remember, subscribe, share, and review. And our next episode, guys, just so you know, we're really excited about this next guest. It's going to be Michael Becker. For, well, he's our friendly neighborhood chemist. How about that? He's. We actually have another one we recorded that we're going to bring on after the series is over. But Michael is uh, just really a wealth of information. He spoke at LashCon. He's going to be back again at next, this coming LashCon. And if you want now to hear from the chemist perspective, you definitely want to come back and tune in for that. We have doctors, we have chemists, and well, physicists, and we have more. We have Illumino coming, uh, so Jen's going to be speaking, as well as Lash Apothecary and more. So there's so much coming up. So mark your calendars. The next episode should drop next Tuesday. All right, guys, that's it. On behalf of my last doctor, Tusney, as well as our special guest, Warren, I want to thank you for taking some time to listen. Keep on lashing, and remember, you have a friend in the lash industry. Bye.